again, on behalf of the church family, let me welcome folks who are visiting with us this morning and uh, those who've been coming along regularly. We're so glad to be gathered to praise God together as a family this morning and to now give our attention to God's Word. Now, if you're visiting this morning and maybe you forgot your Bible or maybe you don't have a Bible, uh, we want you to have a Bible this morning. So if you need one, uh, just raise your hands and we'll bring your Bible. It'll help you to follow along with us. Uh, we're going to be in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11. You hear me say chapter number. If you're new to the Bible, that's the big number. And then we say verse 14, that's the small number. So Luke chapter 11, big number. Verse 14, small number. And we're going to be working our way through Luke chapter 12, verse 12. Um, so you got some hands up. Anybody else need a Bible? Now, if you're here this morning and you, you don't have a Bible at home uh, and you would like a copy of the Bible, we want you to take this one as a gift from us. We, we want you to have God's Word, not only when you're with us here, uh, but to have God's Word in your home. And as we prayed a moment ago, we pray to have it safely written in your heart. Thank you all for distributing the Bibles there. So yesterday, uh, some of you know I mentioned this this morning in Sunday school. Yesterday, I went to the airport with my wife uh, after we left the reception for Colin and Erica's wedding. That was a beautiful wedding, wasn't it? It was a wonderful time to celebrate the first wedding here among the ARC family. But yesterday after the reception, Chris and I drove out to Dulles Airport uh, to pick up my daughter, who was coming back from her senior class trip. Um, they, her and some of her classmates went to, went to Italy and Greece, and it must, must be nice, right? Uh, I'm waiting to see the pictures, because some of us got to live vicariously. Well, we were waiting out there, and we had a long wait. Seems like everybody on spring break was coming back at that time through customs, and no, no, no exaggeration, we stood for about two hours out in customs waiting for them to come through. And uh, my wife struck up a conversation with this guy, this stranger. We never saw, never know. She does that, right? She just go up strangers and start talking. And it turns out they're both extroverts, so they're both just talking, right? And then my wife decided her feet hurt, so she goes sit down, right? And leave me there with Larry is his name. And I know everything about Larry. I know how long he's been married. I know where he lives, where he has lived in the past. I, I know his three kids. He's got twin boys, 14, and a little girl coming back. And uh, I know about the episode where Larry didn't want his wife to watch The Bachelor with his daughter. And uh, his wife didn't sort of, you know, agree at first. And he saw something he didn't like on The Bachelor. So he took scissors and cut the cables to all of the TVs, right? He says that was a bad moment for him, but... But it worked out the good because for three months they didn't have a TV, so they played board games and talked as a family. And so uh, he was kind of happy about that. I also know that Larry used to date a young woman in St. Petersburg, Florida. I, I know way too much about this guy. Right? <laughs> used to date a woman in St. Petersburg, Florida. And while he enjoyed the dating relationship, he pretty soon figured out it wasn't going to work. How did he figure that out? Well, her parents were born-again Christians. And Larry's take on that was they were too insistent that everybody believed the way that they believed. Now, Larry didn't tell me much about his own sort of spiritual understanding, except to say that he, he kind of had one, but it wasn't like theirs, and, and, and he found their attitude kind of off-putting. And, and I understand there are Christians whose attitudes are off-putting. We, we are not always the most gracious and kind people. We don't always express the truth in love. But Larry went on to say what I think a lot of people believe. Essentially, that all roads lead to God. And it doesn't matter much how you worship or which religion you practice, because in the end, all of them lead to God. You hear that objection among, from a lot of people. They might even ask you, what about the billions of people in the world who've never heard of Jesus? Are they not going to heaven? Or, or they may say it more stridently. What do you mean to tell me that because so-and-so, maybe even a family member, wasn't a Christian or didn't understand the gospel or didn't believe this Jesus or believe the way you believe, but who are you to tell me that they are going to hell? And so many people are put off by what they see as the exclusivity of Christianity and the exclusivity 
of Jesus Christ. In other words, they reject the notion that Jesus is the only way. And we can understand those views. If we believe that all religions are equally true, or if we believe that all religions are equally false, if we believe they're equal in whatever way, then we are kind of left to say, well, why, why sort of raise one over the other? Why give first place to this one particular religious person or teaching and then sort of say all the others fail if they're equally true or equally false? But what if they aren't equally true and equally false? What if one is true and all others are false? What if there really is only one way to God. And that that statement isn't really about being narrow-minded or, or being proud or fanatical, as Larry said. And more to the point, what if Jesus thinks that way? What if this isn't a matter of Christians going too far in their zeal? What if this is, in fact, how Jesus thought of himself? What if this is, in fact, what he taught his early followers and, and what they wrote down of his teaching, such that this isn't something that Christians make up because they are proud or chauvinistic or narrow-minded, but, but this is, in fact, in the DNA of what it means to be a Christian? And what if all of that is true? Well, then we have to make some different decisions, don't we? We'll come to our text this morning. Here's, here's what I want us to see. We've called this sermon series, Getting to Know Jesus. And part of what it means to get to know someone is to get to know how they think, what they think about important questions and important issues, even how they think about themselves. And in this text this morning, Luke chapter 11, verses 14, down to Luke 12, verse 12, we are going to see Jesus interacting with other people, but what I want us to pay attention to is what he seems to think about himself and how he seems to think that he is the central figure in all of history and even eternity. And if that's true, how he then is unavoidable, and what we think about him matters greatly. Let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the text. Again, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your Son. By your Spirit, let us, Lord, fathom something of his greatness. Let us get to know him, his thinking, his way of being, that knowing him, we might have eternal life, and that more abundantly. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to outline the sermon in, in four parts, uh, four ways that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way, number one, to be on God's side. It's the only way to be on God's side in God's work of redemption. Number two, the only way to have light in ourselves, in our hearts, the only way to have light in ourselves, in our hearts, is to obey Jesus' word. So the first point comes from verses 14 to 26. The second point comes from verses 27 to 36. Number three, the only way to be clean before God is to offer Jesus our souls. The only way to be clean before God is to offer Jesus our souls. That's verses 37 to 54 of chapter 11. And number four, and finally, the only way to be safe before God is to acknowledge Jesus before men. The only way to be safe before God is to acknowledge Jesus before men. Luke 12, verses 1 to 12. Let's look at that first point in verses 14 to 26. Now, the only way to be on God's side really is to join Jesus in his work. You see there in verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. 
while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided, also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. See there in verse 14, the sort of simple action there. There's a demon who is mute. He is in a person who is unable to speak as long as the demon is in them. Jesus casts out the demon, and all the people marvel in verse 14. But verse 15 has two objections, doesn't it? That there are some who slander Jesus, who say he casts out demons by, the, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In other words, that what he just did is, is animated, it's fueled, it's powered by satanic power. And there are others who don't slander, but they're skeptics. Verse 16, they, in order to test him, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Never mind you cast out demons. Give us a, a sign from heaven that, you are, that you're from God. Now, verses 17 to 26, the Lord addresses the first group. He gives us some teaching, really, on spiritual warfare. And this text, really, just to draw out some simple things from this text, it's really clear that demons are real. Demons exist. In our scientific age, there are many who would like to say that this is just backward superstition, that there are no such thing as demons. And in our religious age, there are many who want to say that there are demons everywhere. The devil made me do everything, right? An extra piece of cheesecake, the devil made me do that. You know, you just see a demon under every rock, right? The truth is in the middle, right? Demons are real, and their activity seems to be concentrated in the Gospels around Jesus and around the breaking in of the kingdom of God. They oppose the work of God. Now, Jesus breaks out into a little sermon with them uh, in some ways on spiritual warfare, but mainly to sort of teach them a point they shouldn't miss. And this sermon has a couple of points. First, he says, a, a divided kingdom cannot stand. That's the general principle in verse 17. If a house fights against itself, it'll soon fall. A country in a civil war, well, it can't go on and prosper it too will soon fall. And that's the truth in, in spiritual things as well. And so Jesus says, now, what sense does this make in verse 18? That I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Why, why would Satan oppose his own army? If he's divided against himself in that way, he will fall, right? In verse 19, Jesus sort of turns the knife on him a little bit. Apparently, there are Jewish exorcists in that day as well. And he asked him the question, so look, you've got sons that cast out demons. What power they cast them out by? They will testify against you. Then he comes to make the second point. If a divided kingdom cannot stand, then what you need to recognize is a new kingdom has just come. You see there in verse 20? He tells the crowds that he drives out demons by the finger of God. I love that phrase. There are two other places where that's used in Scripture. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, when Moses uh, cast the plagues of the gnats on Egypt. And you remember Pharaoh had his own magicians, and they were trying to mimic whatever Moses did. And Pharaoh turned to his magicians and said, look, man, y'all do this too. You know, discredit Moses. You, you call up some gnats. Now, why he want more gnats in the country, I don't know. But well, that's what the man said, right? 
And they tried and couldn't, and the, music, the, the, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is not trickery. This is no parlor trick. God did that. And then a little bit later in, in uh, that same book, Exodus chapter 31, when Moses is given the tablets with the Ten Commandments uh, written on it, it says there that the commandments were written by the finger of God. This phrase kind of shows up when, when God's power and God's revelation and God's kingdom is, is breaking forth in a new way. And Jesus says here, no, the casting out demons, that's the work of God. That's done by the power of God. And if it's by the power of God, what you should recognize is a new kingdom has come. Notice now the third thing he says. Keeps on sort of talking about the nature of spiritual warfare. Verses 21 and 22, he uses this metaphor of a strong man going into another man's castle or another man's house and, and defeating that man in his house and, and evicting him and dividing the spoils. That's what happens in warfare. That's what's happening with Jesus. He's the strong man here. He's coming to the world. He's casting out Satan, and he's taking the plunder and dividing the spoils in the saving of souls. And then he goes down to verses uh, 24 to 26, and he, he sort of tells this little story about a, a demon being evicted and wandering for a while in waterless places, but pretty soon saying, I'm going to go back to what was home for me. And he goes back and he finds the place swept, which is a metaphor for having received God's word, but it's empty. It tells us that the strong man, Christ, isn't living in that home. And so he brings seven other demons with him, and, and they inhabit that house again. And you notice what it says there in verse 26, and that man's final estate is worse than before. I think the Lord is telling Israel that he, the strong man, has come. He's sweeping the house with the announcement of the kingdom of God. But if they don't receive him, their end will be worse than their beginning. You can't get better by rejecting the gospel. We don't grow in strength and prosperity and health spiritually by hearing the word of God and walking away from it, by rejecting it, by attributing it to Beelzebub, by attributing it to some other power other than God. That is not the way to spiritual soundness. That's not the way to spiritual health. And there are no bystanders in this warfare. So look with me at verse 23. Jesus says there, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, here's the verse where you get an insight into how Jesus thinks about himself. Uh, he puts himself really in the middle of this warfare, doesn't he? He's the, he's the dividing line in this warfare. And he says, I have come by the finger of God, bringing the kingdom of God, doing the work of God. And here's what everybody has to understand. You're either with me or against me. You, you're either with me in joining me in this work, or you are against me in failing to do this work, and therefore scattering people from the kingdom. But there's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutral country here. You don't get to sort of say, I ain't in it. No, I know your name ain't Bennett, but you're you in it. You're in it. All of us are, are in it. And we're either with him or against him. That's how he thinks about himself. It's one of the ways he's saying the, the only way to do the work of God is to actually be with me. The only way to be on God's side and to carry out God's will is to actually be with me. And if you're not with me, you're against me. And you're against the work of God in gathering people to himself. Now think about that for a moment. Perhaps you're hearing you're not yet a Christian. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought of yourself as being against God? Most people don't. These Jewish people were really quite religious that he was speaking to. They didn't think of themselves as being against God either. And here they were opposing the very Son of God. I wonder if you see that there's no middle ground. 
that in the warfare for your own soul, you're not neutral. You had better not be. You had better be for the betterment of your soul. And the way to do that is to be with Jesus. He's the only way to enter into the work of God, to enter into the kingdom of God. And all of us who are not with him are against him and against ourselves by not being with him. When we talk about Jesus being the only way, we're not, we're not just simply trying to be proud and to sort of make Christianity the, the only thing as if we make that up or, or it's because Christianity is great because we're Christians. That's, that's not what's going on at all. We're saying actually the kingdom of God has come into the world through a person through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that kingdom is great. And there are no other doors to it except him. And we tell you this, that you might choose the right door. I, I know there's a door number one, a door number two, a door number three, and you may think there's a prize on the other side of every door. No, there's only a prize at the door marked Christ. All the other doors lead to destruction. But Christ leads to the kingdom and the power of God. The only way to enter that kingdom, the only way to do God's work is to be on his side. But that number two, that brings us to a second thing. This kingdom is a kingdom of light. And the only way to have the light in our hearts is to obey God's word. Look with me there in verses 27 to 36. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you. And the breasts at which you nurse. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. You know, it's funny, sometimes when you're preaching or teaching, you, you never know where your amen is going to come from. And sometimes they come at the wrong time, right? So this woman here in verse 27, Jesus is teaching about the unclean spirits and the kingdom of God. And this, this woman busts out in verse 27, blessed, <laughs> blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. It's a strange blessing, but, you know, it, it's her amen, all right? <laughs> it's her amen. But notice what the Lord does in verse 28. He redirects her. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You know, there is no hint in verse 28 of, of what our Roman Catholic brothers believe in terms of the adoration of Mary. If there were ever a place where Jesus held that view, this would have been the place to teach it. To simply say, amen, so to say it again, Right? But no, actually, he has a conception of blessedness that includes all of those who hear his word and obey it. That word blessed could be translated joy or happy. So happy, joyful are those who hear the word of God and do what it says. Now, what's interesting as we think about how Jesus thinks about himself is how he then goes on to talk about the word of God. So you see those next four verses or so, he's actually referring to passages in the Old Testament, in the Bible of his day. So he talks about Jonah, that prophet in the Old Testament, who God sent to a city called Nineveh. But Jonah was a disobedient prophet, so he went the opposite direction, caught a boat going the other way. 
And God said, all right, I got something for you. The Bible says he prepared a fish. And the fish swallowed Jonah when Jonah was thrown over by the, by the, sea, the crewmen of the, of the ship. And the fish swam back to Nineveh and spat him back up on the shore, right? And Jonah, being no dummy, said, well, I guess I better go ahead and preach the gospel here in Nineveh. And Jesus says this now. He's answering those people back up around verse 15 or 16 who kept asking for a sign. He says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. He explains, I think, in verse 30, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, the title that he uses for himself, so he will be in the earth for three days and three nights. What's Jesus doing there? He's saying, basically, if you read your Bible well, you read about me. And the sign of Jonah being in that fish is a sign that's really about me. And he's looking forward to his crucifixion and his death and burial. For three days he remained in the grave and three nights he remained in the grave. And after those three days and three nights he was raised from the grave. And he's saying, now, if you understand your scripture, you know that it's, it's pointing to me. And he uses another example from the Old Testament. He talks about that queen from the south probably Ethiopia, who comes to Solomon. And he comes, she comes seeking Solomon's wisdom. And he says, now, if you knew the wisdom of God, you would, you would know that's me, that I am wisdom personified in all of Solomon's Proverbs, in the, in the book of Proverbs. One greater than Solomon is here. And he begins to explain that because you have missed the sign that, that there are going to be judgments upon you that were worse than the judgments against the queen of the south, a Gentile who, who was no Jew but had sense enough to seek the wisdom of God. And the judgment against you will be worse than the judgment against Nineveh because all of those evil Ninevites who were Gentiles, who were not a part of God's people, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But you, this evil, wicked generation, Jesus says to the people before, you don't repent. And one greater, with a greater sign, is right here before you. And Jesus, in so many words, is saying, listen, the only way to read the Scriptures is to read it in light of me, who I am, and, and what I've come to do to rescue sinners from this judgment. And the only way to read the Scriptures is to read it with a, with a gospel understanding in mind so that even images and pictures like Jonah in the belly of the fish become to you pictures of what happens at Calvary when the Son of Man is crucified for the sins of the world. And what happens at the empty tomb when the Son of Man is buried for three days, but on the third day is raised again from the grave conquering death, conquering sin, satisfying God's demand for a sacrifice to atone or make up for our sin. Jesus says later in Luke 24 that all of the prophets, all of the law, all the scripture is about him. Now either at this point he is the only way or he's a megalomaniac. Either at this point, he is out of his mind proud or he is the fulfillment of the word of God itself. He is the completion of all God's promises to send us a savior who would make us new and rescue us from judgment to come and bring us into the kingdom of God. That's how he thinks about himself. It's not what Christians have made up. It's what he taught about himself, that he is, in fact, the only way. He's the only way to have light in the sinful soul. And that comes by obeying his word. And obedience to his word begins with obedience to the gospel. You see, in this gospel, this word just means good news. In this good news, God makes a demand of everybody. He says in this news, listen, I have sent my son to bear the penalty for your sin. I have punished him in your place. And to prove that his punishment in your place satisfies me, I, I raised him again from the grave. And now I call every, everybody everywhere to repent of their sins 
and to believe in Jesus Christ. Obedience to God's word begins with obedience to the gospel. Turning away from sin, that's what repentance means, and following Jesus as your Lord and Savior until he brings you home. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet began to obey God, begin by believing the gospel. By believing as true and believing that it is for you that Christ has come and Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ is coming again. And center your whole life on this Christ and following him in obedience to his word. That's the only way to have light in the soul is to obey God's word. Which brings us to another way in which Jesus is the only way. Number three, the only way to be clean before God is to acknowledge Jesus before men. Look with me in verses 37 to 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Verse 45 is funny. (laughs) One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus said, woe to you too. (laughs) Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Man, you either like or you, you, or you either love or you hate Jesus, man. You see there in, in verse 30, 37, uh, he's invited to a Pharisee's home to eat in this man's home. And, and the Pharisee, now, he's a little bit upset because Jesus didn't wash his hands. It's not that the Lord was unclean. It's that the Pharisee wanted Jesus to submit to their tradition, to their religious rules. And so the Pharisee is a little vexed that Jesus hadn't washed his hands. And, and Jesus now, in this man's house, said, look here, you wash the outside of the cup and the bowl, referring really to the man's person. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Inside, you are rotten and dead. You are, you are a corpse on the inside, but you're pretty on the outside. In Matthew's version of this, he says that you're whitewashed tombs, you're whitewashed caskets, but, but inside you're, dead, you're full of dead men's bones. That's not polite dinner conversation. <laughs> He's just right in this man's grill, isn't he? And he goes on to pronounce these woes against the Pharisees. You see the next thing he says about the Pharisees? You make all this pretense to, to love God, or you make all this pretense to, to obey God's word and so on. But notice what he says there. Verse 40, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? God cares about your inside. That's the, that's the first step in becoming a Pharisee, to emphasize the outside and neglect the inside. He says that's a foolish thing to do, you fools. Now, notice verse 41, but give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. 
If we would be clean before God, we must have him wash our insides, not just our outside. We must be clean in the soul. We must be clean in the heart. For you remember what Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel, that is out of the heart that all of our sins come. All, all of our cursings and blasphemies, all of our, all of our uh, acts of sin, all of that springs from a poison in our hearts. And if we're going to be clean before God, we must have that deep clean of being washed inside, of offering to God through Christ as alms, as worship, our very souls. And to cry out with the psalmist, cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me that I might be whiter than snow. It doesn't come by external religious observance. It comes by the Spirit of God washing and regenerating and sanctifying God's people. Notice something else about these Pharisees. Verses 42 to 44. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb. You see there, they're very exacting about their religious rules. But, but notice this, and neglect justice and the love of God. I, I am never more convinced than I am today that the Pharisees are not just some ancient Jewish sect, but they are alive and well today. They are alive and well today. You don't believe me? Open a Twitter account, start a Facebook page, and as a Christian, type the word justice. You watch the Pharisees come out. Just the mention of the word angers them. Just the, just the insinuation that there is some injustice in the world for us to be engaged in. Well, that, that sets them to gnashing their teeth and sharpening their pencils so they can detail exactly the rules of Christian engagement and understanding, you see, to, to dot all of your theological I's and cross all of your theological T's and neglect justice and the love of God. Jesus would seem to think that that's not what it means to follow him. That you would do the first and not neglect the second. That you would be scrupulous about following the Lord. That you would be careful about dotting your I's and crossing your T's. But you would also do what the law is designed to do, which is to, to call us to love of God and love of neighbor. And not neglect that, but pursue that. Jesus here just pressing into the Pharisees in verse 44. Woe to you, for you like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing. It's like, man, to follow you is to walk in the dark over an open grave, and to fall in, and to be buried under religious legalism. We saw the lawyer stand up and say, wait a minute, now that, you sound like you're talking about us too, because... We're kind of close with the Pharisees. And Jesus says, yes, woe to you too. And notice how he begins to, to give woes for them. And, and that word woe means judgment, right? He pronounces judgment on them too. For they too are hypocrites. Verses 42 to 44, we've looked at, look at verse 46. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. It's a striking contrast to how he described his own work, isn't it? He does his work by the finger of God, and these people will not even lift a finger to help their followers. You load burdens on people, and you don't relieve them. Not one bit. Verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. He said, listen, you are descended from those persons who rejected God's word and rejected God's messengers, but you think you're different. In fact, you, you comply with them when you build the tombs and build the, ma the mausoleums. You build the, the record of their lives, but you don't follow the teaching of their lives. Woe to you. Woe to you. Hypocrites, he says to them. And skipping down just a little bit further, he summarizes in verse 52, doesn't he? Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves the kingdom of God, and you hindered those who were entering. What a devastating condemnation of so-called religious leaders. Having the key, taking it away from people, not entering themselves, and hindering others. 
It is perhaps the hottest part of hell that is reserved for such a teacher who knowing the gospel will not preach it, who knowing the entrance into the kingdom will not point it out, who will not themselves enter and in fact will get in the way of others entering. This is why Jesus says, woe. The agony of that judgment will be terrible. Let's see the main point in verse 41. Give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. That's the promise that God makes to every sinner. <laughs> I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I love his gospel because it's not offered to people who have themselves together. It's offered to sinners, to broken people, to people whose lives are jacked up, who, who can tell that their lives are jacked up, who know that they need a physician. He came for those. He didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance, and repentance is such good medicine. It's a good word. A wonderful word to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. If you would offer your entire self to Christ, to be his servant, to follow him, he will clean you. He'll make you new. He'll wash you. Feel dirty? Come to Christ. Feel soiled? And unclean, come to the one who will wash your soul. You feel broken and torn apart, come to the one who will mend you, who will heal you. If you give him the pieces of your life, he'll make you whole. This is the promise of the gospel. I noticed some things that we should observe here for application for ourselves if we're already Christians. Noticing the Lord, how he thinks about himself as, as central to our cleansing and central to our salvation. And notice him here as a preacher, telling the truth to people's faces, even sitting at their dinner table in their homes. Now, one of the applications is, is for the preacher. The preacher ought to be sure that his soul is secure in the salvation of Christ. Don't neglect, Thabiti, your own soul while preaching to others about their souls. I love the way Richard Baxter puts this. This, this leader, a couple hundred years ago, he wrote this. It's a long quote. Try to, I'll try to read it well and hang with me here. He says this to ministers. Take heed to yourselves, lest you should be void of that saving grace of God which you offer to others. And be strangers to the effective working of that gospel which you preach. Unless while you proclaim the necessity of a Savior to the world, your heart should neglect him and you should miss an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed to yourselves lest you perish while you call upon others to take heed of perishing. And lest you famish or go hungry yourselves while you prepare their food. Many men have warned others that they come not to the place of torment, which yet they hurry to themselves. Many a preacher is now in hell that have a hundred times called upon his hearers to use the utmost care and diligence to escape it. When we say Jesus is the only way, we're not just sort of saying that to you because you're not a Christian. Even the preacher needs to be saying that to himself because it's vital to his soul as well. Here's another application, church. We have to be careful how we hear God's word, don't we? If it is by his word that we are cleansed and by his word that we know him, then we had better not neglect the hearing of his word and, and the obeying of his word. And we should even love those hard truths, right? Jesus is sitting here in this man's house. I can't get over that. Saying these hard truths to this man. By the way, John MacArthur puts it, hard truth makes a soft heart. Mm. 
I think that's right. I think that captures the spirit of Jeremiah 23. And Jeremiah writes in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 23, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord. He says this, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. That's what hard truth does from God's word. It falls like a hammer and it breaks up the stony heart. And God's people, they love that banging on their heart. They love that breaking of the stony places so that the soft flesh of their new life in Christ is unrestricted and free. So church, always pray for preachers who will tell you the truth. And if you're visiting with us this morning and you're looking for a church home, you don't have to settle here, but please settle at a church where the preacher will tell you the truth. Seek a preacher who will stand flat-footed with the Bible and open it up line upon line, precept upon precept, and give it to you as it really is in the Word. It's the best medicine for all our souls. And let us keep a soft heart. How do we keep a soft heart before God? A few things. Pray for it. If we notice some hardening in our hearts, we should pray for a fresh softening. Number two, read and meditate on God's Word daily. It's by the Word that that our hearts are cleansed. It's by the Word that our hearts are made glad and, and soft before God. Let's do that daily. And number three, receive God's Word in faith. Don't receive it as some cold, dead letter, but it's alive and active and, and receive it as such. Trust it. O obey it. Which is the fourth thing. Apply God's Word. If you read this book, God will speak to you. And if you apply it, He will change you. And number five, expect blessings from it. Expect the blessings of righteousness and growth as we hold fast to God's Word. Let's keep a soft heart knowing that Christ's word is the way God speaks to us. Finally, as we conclude, the only way to be safe before God is to acknowledge Jesus before men. This is what we see in chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also, will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Lord brings this, this exchange to a, a strong end. In verses 1 to 3, again, he warns of the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees, that God's people, <laughs> we are not to be hypocrites. We can be imperfect, and we are. We can struggle, and we do. But we ought to be honest about our imperfections and honest about our struggles as we continue to cling to the cross and cling to our Savior. But we're not to be hypocrites. You can be a Christian, or you can be a hypocrite, but you can't be both. And so the Lord says, beware the, the, the leaven of the Pharisees. And he tells us here in verses 2 and 3, one of the reasons to beware is there's nothing that you do in the dark that's not going to come out in the light. My mother would say it'll all come out in the wash, right? 
It's all going to come out in the end. On that great day of God's judgment, when his face turns to us in searing light, all the things we thought were hidden will be brought out into the plainness of day. And so the encouragement is to live in the light. Avoid the darkness. Walk before the face of God knowing that he sees all and he knows all and swear off hypocrisy that we might feebly and fumbling and imperfectly, but genuinely and truly and humbly follow hard after Christ. I notice he keeps going there. He moves from the, the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and, and he begins to tell us why we should be warned about that hypocrisy. He tells us, first of all, that we ought not to fear man. You see that in verse 4? Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they can't do anything. Instead, verse 5, fear the one who has authority to not only kill, to take a life, but has authority to cast a person into hell. Now, if you get verse 5, that clarifies for you verse 4. And you say, I don't fear no man, if you get verse 5, because there is a God who's greater than every man to whom I have to give an account. That's the one I fear. Because when I lay this body down, he still ain't done with me. There's a judgment after this. There's a soul that lives forever, and that soul, my soul, has to deal with God on that day. I'm worried about the buster who can jack my car. I ain't worried about the buster who can, who can rob me going home. I ain't worried about the buster who can break into my house. All that can happen, and all that can be terrible. And all of that, in a certain sense, is fearful, but not in the ultimate sense, not compared to that day when we all have to give an account to God. Because that guy who robs us, that guy who mugs us, that guy who takes our life, he's done. And then he's going to have to give an account to God. Oh, but the one who, the one who rejects God and does not fear him, he will never be done with his business before God. Because all of eternity, the judgment of God will rest upon him. And there will be no escape. Hell is not a place you flee to to get away from God. Hell is the place where the fury of God and the anger of God in its purity and in its eternal extent is always felt. It's not that you die and then you're free. We die and then we're judged. Either to life because we have trusted Christ or to hell because we have rejected. Do not reject him. Fear God, who has authority over life and hell, and flee to Christ, that you might be saved. And then the verses 6 and 7 make more sense, don't they? He's been telling us to, to fear God, but then all of a sudden in verses 6 and 7, did you notice he turns on a dime? He talks about these sparrows. They're, they're five of them are worth two pennies. And God doesn't forget a one of them. And then he says, the conclusion in verse 8, even the hairs of their head are all numbered, so therefore, fear not. You are of more value than those sparrows. This is a striking paragraph. It begins with, fear God who can cast you into hell, and then fear not because you are more valuable to God than sparrows. He's numbered all the hairs on your head. It's an interesting sort of blending of two different kinds of fear, the, the kind of fear that we should feel before a holy and omnipotent God, but also the, the kind of acceptance and love we should feel if God is our Father. Maybe one way to illustrate this is to tell you a story about um, my girls. I went to pick my girls up uh, from school when we were in Cayman uh, one day, and uh, I pull up and um, they, oftentimes they would be outside talking after school and little friends would be around. And, and, and interestingly, when I would come up, uh, some of them would go away, the friends, particularly the little guys. You know, they, they'd go away. And one day Fia gets in the car and she tells me about this friend. She says, you know what he said? I said, what's that, baby? She said, um, uh, my friend, let's call him Jonathan. He says, uh, your dad looks like he's real cool. That's right. <laughs> like he's like he real cool. He's like, a, he like he's a nice guy. So, but I'm still scared of him. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what, I'm about, right? that's what I'm talking about, right? That's the blend, I think, in this text. It's like, God's real cool. It's a wonderful God. Numbers the hairs on my head. I'm still not going to mess with him. So Jesus tells us there's a way to 
to honor God and reverence God, to be loved by God, to experience that love, that is in fact freeing. And he explains it further, looking down in verses 8 and 9. And this is where you begin to see how Jesus thinks of himself. He says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You you see what he's saying here? Our entire standing before God depends upon how we respond to him. If we are ashamed of him before men, little bitty old puny men, he will be ashamed of us before God, the great and awesome, glorious God. But if we acknowledge him, if we trust him, if we believe in him, if we don't shrink back, and, and when people start to talk bad about Christians, we don't pretend we're not one, right? And, and, and when Christians began, or, or when people began to sort of insult Christians and slander Christians, we don't, we don't look to sort of save our own necks, but, but we in humility, but also strength, say, no, that's my Lord. That, that's my Savior. Like the little girl shot in Columbine when, when the shooter asked, you know, is there anybody here a Christian? And she says, I am. Praise be to God. And Jesus says, in that moment, and for all of eternity, I acknowledge that child. She acknowledged me before men, even when her life was on the line. I acknowledge her before the angels of God, before the throne of God, before God my Father, and I will never forsake her. Oh, man, if you can't be a Christian and be a hypocrite, you shouldn't be a Christian and be ashamed either. It's nothing to be ashamed of in trusting Christ. They laugh at you because you don't club no more. They knew who you used to be. So what? They tell them, I don't go to the club because I'm going to hang with Jesus, man. I'm going, I'm going to be with Christ's people to, to pray to him and to serve him and to study his word. It's, oh, man, that's boring. And your, your classmates say, oh, man, that's you square. You ain't cool. Fine. Jesus is mine. And I am his. And, and for acknowledging him before you, He's going to acknowledge me before God in heaven. <laughs> Which do you want? The praise of men or the praise of God? It's the praise of God, isn't it? And so I say to you, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, you see how Jesus thinks of himself as standing between you and God and whether you acknowledge him or not depends upon whether or not he acknowledges you before God, acknowledge him. You will lose nothing by acknowledging Christ as your Savior, and you will gain everything in this life and eternity. Acknowledge him. We insist that he's the only way, not because we're arrogant, but because he's the only way. And because that is for our blessing. So one other thing from the text, and we'll stop. One other thing that we need to take note of here in verses uh, 10 down to the end of the chapter. It says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We do a whole sermon on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So much confusion about this. Well, here I think what Jesus simply means, the word blasphemy means slander. And those who slander the Spirit of God. And I think he's referring particularly back to the earlier part of the chapter where they said he was casting out demons by the power of the devil, by Beelzebub. Those who slander the Spirit of God will not be able to recognize the work of God. And so will not be able to participate in that work. They'll have their vision blurred and their hearts hardened, and all that God the Spirit does for us in the preaching of the Word, in the giving of new hearts, in the sanctifying and building of His people, it will be forfeited for that slander, for that hardness. If you have ears to hear this morning and breath to believe and to confess Christ, you have not yet slandered the Spirit unto damnation. Believe upon Him. Repent. Trust in Christ. Even your slander against Christ, if you've ever committed it as I have, the Bible says here it will be forgiven of you. Confess your sin. If God promises you forgiveness, seek it, accept it, enjoy it. 
And the Spirit himself will be a gift to you, who will be with you when it's time to speak up, as verses 11 and 12 say, who will be with you to, to acknowledge Christ before men, and will be with you until that day we're in God's kingdom and Christ acknowledges us before God. Jesus is, in fact, the only way to be clean on the inside, to have light on the inside, to do the work of God, the only way to be approved before God. Follow that one way. You don't need many, just one. Praise God, he's given us one.